audio. I would give up. I would feel like it all got to be too heavy and a bit much, and I would just totally give up. But then within a month or two, I'd, I would really miss that struggle. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin, and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Guys, we are officially kicking off season two here with the raddest, trad-daddest of them all, Tommy Caldwell. I'm so psyched. What a guy, what an interview. There is so much gold in this conversation, I cannot wait to share it with you, but before we dive in... I just want to take a moment to welcome you back to The Struggle after our little summer hiatus, or if you're new to the show, welcome. So I've been working really hard to bring together another season of incredible names, relatable struggles, and actionable takeaways so that we can all level up our training and performance, and as we like to do, this season will feature 10 of the best climbers in the world. From big wall to boulders, sport to comp, I ask these pros the same questions in each episode. Where have you personally struggled in your training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and what did it teach you? Why do I ask the same questions each week? Is it host laziness? No. How dare you? There is a thoughtful reason for the format here, and that's to see if there are some patterns that can be identified, basically like an elite climbing DNA, if you will, that will help the rest of us in our pursuits on rock. So I'm beyond psyched for the lineup that we got coming at your earballs for the next few months, starting with one of, if not the goat of all around climbing, Sir Tommy Caldwell. Listing all of Tommy's accomplishments could just by themselves take this episode to the three hour mark. So I'm just gonna hit some highlights here. How about we start with some first ascents and first free ascents? Five of them on El Cap alone, including the dihedral wall, which went unrepeated for 12 years. And of course the Dawn wall, widely considered the hardest big wall climb ever, which he freed with Kevin Jorgensen, who joined us in season one. Tommy was also the first person to free the nose in under 12 hours and free two El Cap routes in a day. What else? Well, with his bromance and season one guest Alex Honnold, Tommy freed the Yosemite Triple Crown, bagged the first ascent of the Fitz Traverse in Patagonia, and holds the nose speed record at under two hours. What in the actual hell? That's crazy. But can he sport climb? Yeah, he can. Tommy put up the FA on Flex Luther, which he didn't even bother giving a grade because he's Tommy, and it went unrepeated for 18 years and now has been suggested at 15B, which would make it the first 9B in the world a full five years before his buddy Chris Sharma put down Jumbo Love. And if all of that doesn't put him at Paul Bunyan status, Tommy saved his friends' lives after being taken hostage in Kyrgyzstan, cut off his finger, and somehow just climbed even harder, and probably has a resting heart rate of six. This guy is a tireless activist for environmental causes. In other words, he's a real underachiever, y'all, and we spent most of our time talking about donuts. So I've been training my fingers pretty hard the past few months to level up for the fall season and to keep healthy and, and just protect from injury. Every day, I'm doing two simple things. I shake up some delicious supercharged collagen from Fizzy Vantage, and then I go through a six-minute finger routine to deliver that collagen to where it's needed most. It's super easy. Does it work? Yeah. That's why over 50 pros from Jonathan Segrist to Daniel Woods are using it. 
Y'all, Fizzy Vantage is just the best of the best when it comes to performance nutrition for climbing, and I'm so psyched that they're the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Put simply, you guys, they're going to allow you to train harder and stay healthier so you can level up your performance. Hit that link in the show notes to check out their full line and use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. I'm psyched to share that the official gear sponsor of The Struggle is Petzl. Y'all, I love these guys, and I trust them not only with my own noggin, but with my kids' noggins as well. I've been using Petzl gear for a decade, and they are as rad and reliable as it gets. Their new Sirocco helmet goes above and beyond helmet standards to give you an extra level of protection on the top and side of the helmet. Why does this matter? Well, when you're climbing at your limit, you want to know that your noggin is protected from the unexpected whip or rockfall or perhaps an errant Red Bull can from the next climb over, and the Sirocco is going to give you that confidence. Is it comfy? Oh, yeah. It is super light. It's packed with vents for excellent airflow. Y'all, if you need a helmet, this is the one. Check it out at your local gear shop or pop by Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. All right, my TC Pros are laced up. I'm ready to rock here. Um, something to know, actually, before we start here is that even before I hit record on this podcast, Tommy broke the news to me that he had just re-ruptured his Achilles literally the day before this interview, and he hadn't shared it on Instagram yet. So, you know, as we do, we just kind of jump right into struggle. So with that, let us hand jam our way into this highly motivating conversation with Tommy Caldwell. Man, I'm really sorry about your foot. That's a tough one. I broke my heel um, bouldering, barefoot, drunk. Not <laughs> not great. Not a great um, situation to be in. But I cracked my heel in half, and I was in a boot for six months, and it was really, um, really started to wear on me. So I feel your pain, man. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've been out six months already from this, and this means probably another six months. And my morale's been great so far. I've been like, oh, I got a great family to hang with. But I got to admit, like yesterday when I heard it snap, I was like, my morale did dip a bit. Oh, buddy. I imagine when I can climb again, I'm going to be super, super excited about it in a way that I wouldn't be if I didn't get injured. Although, I mean, I'm I'm honestly not that that experienced with injury. I haven't been injured since I chopped off my finger like 22 years ago or whatever it was. Yeah, well, you know, you just, you go big, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whether it's the climbs that you do or the injuries, you don't mess around with the small injuries. You just cut your finger off or blow out your Achilles twice in a row, man. Um, well, look, I, I want to talk about all of this. Um, you are in uh, shockingly good spirits for coming off of this injury just yesterday. So um, let's dive in, man. I'm really psyched to have you here. Thank you for joining the struggle. Yeah, great to be here, Ryan. Well, the psych is high. Uh, Tommy, before we jump into the specifics of your training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, let's go broad to narrow. So let's just start with this concept of struggle in the first place. What does struggle mean to you as a climber? I mean, in its, in its essence, I feel like climbing is is all about struggle. Like we need struggle in a lot of ways to feel and become the most that we can be. Um, at least that's the way that I view it. Although I did listen to this podcast yesterday that was talking about like the idea of 
like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and it kind of debunked that whole theory <laughs> which in a way i was like huh that's i really thought of my life so much that way like what makes you stronger you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger for sure i felt that way and it was weird listening to this kind of other viewpoint on that and it, and it really framed it as a very american idea yeah i'm curious what what was the takeaway it was a hidden brain podcast and it was sort of it was sort of yeah. through, the, through the lens of like like people from underprivileged places or places that aren't as privileged as the United States, their struggle hasn't necessarily created opportunity or wealth for them. I don't remember all the details. I was kind of like multitasking while listening to it. I guess at the end, I kind of took away this idea that if you believe what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, then it can be that way. <laughs> but it's not that way for everyone. Yeah, that's cool. You know, I, I interviewed um, Kevin Jorgerson uh, on season one of this show, and he talked specifically about um, kind of the struggle of climbers being essentially a struggle of privilege, a struggle of choice. And, um, you know, if you look at real struggle in in the world, um, it, it kind of pales in comparison, um, which I get. And I think that's it sounds like what that that maybe what that podcast was talking about as well. But but as climbers, I think to your earlier point, you know, taking on a certain level of struggle is what makes it rewarding often. Um, it makes it engaging. It, it's what drives us and pushes us to our limits. And I'm curious to to learn from your point of view whether your relationship with struggle as a climber has evolved. Because um, you've always tried really hard. You've always been really, really dedicated. But has your relationship with struggle as it comes to, you, you know, your time training and climbing, um, has that evolved? Has that changed since you began the sport? Yeah, I think it's probably constantly evolving. Like as a child, my dad definitely successfully instilled in me this idea that we that we have to pursue struggle. And so I I embraced that from a really young age. But then there was a time when I was a competition climber where I was around people like Chris Sharma who seemingly didn't struggle that much. Just like everything came so naturally to that guy and some of the other people where I was like, man, maybe maybe like struggling isn't necessary maybe the fact that i have struggle and angst in my life just means i'm not as good and but then when i went through kyrgyzstan and chopping off my finger those were like big potential setbacks that did ultimately like i feel like make me a way more well-adjusted driven person and then as i've gotten older i'm 43 now i've got maybe a little bit comfortable in life like with my you know my family and you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm just at, the, at this like really comfortable place. And in a lot of ways, I, I miss the struggle. Like I crave going on big trips that are going to make me feel alive in this way that only the unknown can. And so I guess that's a, a missing of struggle in a way. I highlighted this quote when I read the push. Um, you're talking about how you were born, essentially, like like your, your mother almost died in childbirth, it sounds like, um, giving birth to you. And, you know, you, you wrote, life is all about risk and reward better to have struggled to have tried than to not have seized an opportunity at all struggle is how i started and struggle is how i will probably finish so it seems like yeah you've got a pretty healthy relationship with struggle maybe whether you want it or not and do you do you foresee yourself continuing to seek that out just in different ways as your body changes as you get older i mean i would say definitely i think i i thrive on it in some weird ways even with this injury like with this Achilles injury, like when I re-ruptured it for the second time, like 
I felt like it was a low point, but there was like this little piece of me way down deep that's like, this is going to help me in some way. Like I'm, I don't know what that way is yet for sure, but I can feel like I've, I've come, I've rebounded from certain things so many times that I'm, I'm sure that that pattern will happen again. And I can get excited about that. And I imagine that anytime that I, I don't have that much struggle in my life for a period of time, I, I find a way to to bring it into my life through a big climbing project or something like that. And so at, and at some point, my physical body isn't going to be able to really handle it in that way. And so maybe I'll pursue it in more mental pursuits or I don't know, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I dig that. You know, I, one of the patterns that I've seen in, in doing this show now with elite climbers in, in various different disciplines is that there's, there is a, a positivity and optimism about struggle, about pain, about setback, about failure. There's a hunger to want to push through and overcome that seems to be a trait for those who perform at the highest levels. Where do you think that comes from? You mentioned your dad. You wrote a lot about your dad and his impact on you in, in your book. Is it nature? Is it nurture? I mean, I would say right now it's more nurture. At least I, I believe that right now. I think it was a spark that was ignited by my father and then sort of, uh, sort of fostered through love of climbing. I mean, I just, I mean, when you go out and you have big climbing projects, you, you get addicted to that process, that kind of emotional, um, roller coaster of, getting defeated and then rebounding and finding ways to break through. And it's like this crazy process of struggle that is kind of addicting in a way. And, um, and I think if you've done that for long enough, you, you tend to just view life that way and you, you want it. Yeah. The struggle itself becomes addicting. I mean, I get it. I, look, that might be the only explanation for the adventures that you've been on and continue to put yourself through. So um, I want to peel back more on some of those adventures and some of the struggle. Let's first get nerdy here. Let's look at training and, and where have you struggled in your training, Tommy? I, mean, I, I love training in a very non-scientific way. Like I love going out and just climbing tons and beating myself up in the mountains. Like kind of my favorite training in, in my life was for when I was doing big link ups on El Cap where I needed to be able to climb at a relatively high level for like 15 or 20 hours at a time. And so I would train that way like three days a week. I would wake up super early and I would go for a bike ride or a run and then I would campus and then I would do a bouldering workout and then I would sport, you know, I just it would do everything. I'd end, end with weightlifting and maybe another bike ride. So I was just outside really, really being active for a super long time. And I loved that. Um, the way that I struggle now is the more scientific methods of training that seem to be getting more popular these days that are quite effective, like hangboarding and using a stopwatch and campusing like sometimes I get excited on that stuff but for the most part I just don't find it as engaging and so I, I would say that's a bit of a struggle for me like I in a lot of ways I know this is probably the best way for me to stay strong or get strong especially as an increasingly busy person it's more efficient to do a hangboard workout than you know go outside and beat yourself up in the mountains for 20 hours and so I know I should do it more but I do I do struggle with finding the motivation always time to always to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I recall when you were training for kind of what you saw as likely the final push for the Dawn Wall, um, you wrote that you essentially looked at training like a full-time job. You're like, I'm going to do this eight to 10 hours a day. I'm going to get really serious here. 
Yeah, you had said you had kind of resisted your dad's attempts to bring a more scientific approach to your training. Was there ultimately any joy to be found in that more scientific approach, or is it really just more of a grind? I, mean, I find when there's a very clear goal that I'm training for, then I have the motivation, and it's really exciting. But if I'm just kind of training to stay fit and for maintenance, then I'm not, I don't try nearly as hard. Is a clear goal like I want to be able to hang another 10 pounds, you know, to, uh, above my personal record or is a goal like uh, an objective on a wall? Yeah. Like an adventurous goal. Like, yeah. Upping my, you know, upping my weight on a weighted hang isn't enough of a goal for me. <laughs> I need something that I'm really excited to get out and do. I mean, that becomes a goal too. Like I kind of think of it like a goal matrix. Like when everything's going right, I have like the BHAG, like the ultimate big goal that's like kind of pie in the sky. And then I've got like bouldering projects or sport climbing goals that are going to help me get there. And then I've got training goals um, that will help me get to those bouldering goals. And so I'm always sort of training, pursuing those goals. But that, that kind of that whole the whole matrix of goals needs to be there for me. That's like the formula that works the best. And I can't always find that. Like right now I don't have any like huge goal that I'm super excited about. And so I find it a little bit harder to motivate the trend. Although now that I'm injured, I'm kind of like, maybe, maybe just like still being a good climber is going to be enough of a goal. Cause it's definitely causing some anxiety in my life. If I can't use my foot in the same way anymore. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I I feel that with the with like a big adventurous goal. I think it's you know it's it's a picture you can cut out and put up. You can you can research it, watch videos, and 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 the training becomes that much more grounded in what you know will be um, a life changing adventure or or reward. Um, so I like that matrix. I appreciate you you sharing that. I think that's good for the rest of us climbers that are uh, regardless of level. You know, if you're trying to break into your first five eleven or you're trying to break into your first 515, like having that objective to drive your training, I think is highly motivating. Totally. I'd like to, before we shift off of training, just, you know, you mentioned these these kind of major injuries, right? Um, ruptured Achilles, which you're currently struggling with and working through. And then you said you, you had stayed relatively injury-free since chopping off your finger. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like one of your first big objectives coming back from that was flex luther is that right yeah i mean yeah after chopping off my finger i kind of made these two big goals that i had previously tried one was flex luther and the other one was free climb in the south a well in a day and those were sort of driven by this idea that i was really worried that missing a finger was gonna make it so i couldn't climb well anymore um yeah so i was like if i can if i can accomplish these two goals then then i'll know i can hell yeah well you know, Flex Luther was, <laughs> I mean, if you believe Matty Hong's upgrade to 15B, which I don't think anybody has any reason to question, that would make it the first 15B in the world years before your your buddy Chris Sharma put up Jumbo Love, of course. So regardless of the grade, though, it is an incredibly physical, kind of heinous looking climb with a lot of weird positions and um, interesting ways of pinching and using your hands and, and all of this. So what was your training like? I mean, you had just chopped off your finger. How do you now train for what ended up being the toughest sport route in the world? I mean, I would say it was like medium scientific. I, I set a lot of it. The, the, the route itself was very like 
like physical, like full body climbing. It, there wasn't like any down pulling holds. You had to, you had to finger lock, you had to knee bar in all these weird ways. And there was a lot of pinches and pinching was the thing that became the hardest when I chopped off my finger. So I remember doing a lot of indoor training on my Woody where I would set just problems with pinches. But then I also made some wooden blocks that I would hang from like a pulley machine and do like, you know, like a, like a pull down machine, like a lap pull machine. And I would use that and I had a, a wide one and a, and a narrow one. And so I worked on my pinching a lot. Uh, my dad also built me this finger strengthening machine with like this plate loaded thing where you could pull together and really work on concentric finger strength, which scientifically I think they, you know, most people who are really into hangboarding say that doesn't help that much these days. But for me, it made me feel strong. Like I felt like I could just grab holds and like reel them in and it gave me a lot of confidence. Um, and I think just like overall, I climbed four days a week or something like that for training. I mean, when I was leading up to going to Flex Luther and kind of overcoming my injury, I would, I would climb indoors like two days a week. And then I would climb outdoors two days a week. But usually when I'd climb outdoors, I'd come back and do more training. We didn't know hangboarding was even a, an effective thing back then. Um, so I did a lot of campusing as well. Um, and weightlifting kind of in, 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 my, in the vein of my dad. He was always such a weightlifter. So I did quite a bit of weightlifting. I always thought that um, doing, like anytime I'm training, whether it be weightlifting or campusing or bouldering, I always do it to complete failure. Like if I'm going to do a set of push-ups or whatever, I just do a set until I absolutely fail because I feel like the capacity to just try really, really hard is kind of the most important thing for me. That's fascinating. I love that. I just, I want to peel that back. So is that um, a theme of your current training? Do you tend to, you know, focus on like a muscle group or an energy system or something like that? and do it to failure and then that's it. So it's essentially one set till failure or is just, you'll do multiple sets, but every single one of them is to failure. Yeah. I mean, training that way takes a high level of motivation and it's very painful. <laughs> and so sometimes I just can't like dig as much out of me as I can at other times. Like I know when my training's good, it's like I'm, I'm going until my muscles are shaking and I completely fail. And I try and do that as much as possible. But I don't always achieve it. Like sometimes I kind of get a little lazy and I'm like, I'm just going to do five sets of 10 or something like that. And then in bouldering, you, you know, you don't come out of the gate and climb till failure on your warm up. You got to warm up. And so sometimes I let my warm up linger a little longer than I think I should. <laughs> you know, but I do always get to the point where I'm, where I'm climbing things that are like absolutely to failure and trying as hard as I can. Well, I want to come back to that when we get to the mental game chapter, because I think there's, there's something pretty unique and powerful uh, about that. But my last question on training here is how you look at the concept of rest and, and how that may have evolved um, over the years. Yeah, I used to think rest was overstated. I thought that I just looked around me at the best climbers and they didn't rest much. And hmm. now I think that I... I think that you have to train yourself to not have to rest. And that takes a really long time. Like if I haven't, like I've been busy the last couple of years and haven't been climbing as much. And so I feel like I need more rest, but I want to get back to the place where I don't need as much rest. And again, that's not very scientifically. Like if you look at tendon health, for instance, they say like, if you give your tendons a really good workout, it takes them 40 hours to recover. And so 
I'm conflicted in some ways. Like I look at the science and I hear that, but I also still look at the people that are climbing the best and they climb a ton, at least in training. I mean, I, I think for most of my climbing life, I, I knew that I was climbing enough that I was always only climbing at like 90% my ultimate ability. And then when it really would matter, then I would rest and it would make me feel amazing. Yeah, I think part of that is is trying to um, turn off the incredible drive that you have to just get out and adventure, it seems like. I, I know when I was talking with Alex Honnold last season, it was, it was very similar. He said, well, look, I know that if I'm going to climb 515, what I should probably be doing is, is hangboarding a few days a week and that's it. But he's like, but that's, but I don't want to do that. I want to get out and I want to climb. And so he's like, I just know that, you know, I think I'll get there, but I'll probably get there slower because I want to do certain things. And, um, that's an interesting conflict to have. I mean, a lot of us, you know, amateur climbers don't have that ability. Maybe we're weekend warriors. We get our one or two days a week, you know, outside. And then all we can do effectively is hangboard. Um, but I think that for, for you all that have the option of getting outside and just like climbing on awesome routes or blocks, you know, to say no to that's got to be a little challenging sometimes. Yeah, especially for the mega endurance stuff that both Honold and myself like to do, like where we go out and we hike a really long ways to approach something or we link up a bunch of mountains like that is actually terrible for power. And for hard for climbing hard numbers, I feel like it really it's super counterproductive. And so I'm always kind of struggling with that because I love to get out there. I mean, even now, I like, get out on my bike. Even with my Achilles injury, I can you know I can still push with my heel, so I get out and I bike a, a ton. And then if I come back and try and campus, I'm like, oh, maybe maybe it would be better if I didn't. But I but I've got this like need. I think I think morale is something people should talk a little more about. Like if you if you feel excited by being out in the wilderness and doing exciting things, that is only going to help your climbing. Um, even if maybe technically it makes it so that your training, you don't feel quite as good for the actual training. Just some really great and, and fresh perspectives on training there, Tommy. I appreciate that. Let's shift now towards nutrition. And is this an area where you've struggled? I, I've never gotten, again, super scientific about my nutrition. Um, I generally try to eat healthy. I eat primarily vegetarian. I try and get a lot of protein. Um, and as sort of an insurance policy, I sometimes, I sometimes take like protein and vitamin supplements especially if I'm in a place where I can't eat a lot of like healthy food, like on an expedition, but I'm not, I don't eat a ton, I, I, I don't eat a ton of junk food. You know, I think just like generally in life, I, I'm a relatively healthy eater. Yeah. You wrote, um, I, I think this is when, again, you're, you're really buckling down for, for what you felt might be the final attempt on the Dawn wall. And this is when you were kind of doing the eight to 10 hours a day of training. I think you wrote something to the extent of cutting out um, bread and, and alcohol and caffeine, um, that kind of thing. So are, are you, when you have that objective, when you know you're like, you've really got to sharpen the spear and it might be a, a matter of a, a tenth of a percent that you need, how do you look at your diet and how, to, maybe you can just use that example on the Dawn Wall. Yeah. I mean, that's probably as far as I've gone is cutting out bread, alcohol and sugar. Well, no, actually that's not true. When I, um, I was having a lot of skin issues on the Dawn Wall. And just 
and specifically my skin would get too thick actually and then it would get really brittle and start to crack and so I was trying all these different lotions and stuff like that but at, at some point I ultimately realized that I had to sort of fix it through what I was eating and so I, I talked to uh, essentially a nutritionist and they and they had me eating a lot of um, like fish oils and leafy greens and I think that stuff helped. I don't, I don't know for sure, but it seemed like it probably did. Yeah, I would think, you know, yeah, certainly for where you were talking about, you know, being on for weeks um, on the wall. And and I think there was a point at which on your left hand, you had like a really bad splitter, like on your middle finger. So you're effectively only using three fingers. So I think skin becomes um, pretty critical at that point in time. Uh, but I'm curious to know, you know, what the effect of... Um, cutting out bread or uh, certainly alcohol makes sense, but caffeine, did you also cut back on caffeine? Uh, yeah, I have cut out caffeine. I do it on occasion, mostly because I want to be able to use it as a tool and have it work. Like I don't want to become reliant on it. Like if I drink caffeine every day, you just kind of become mm -hmm. reliant on it. But if I cut it out on occasion, then when I use it again for training, it really helps. Like it allows me to have a really effective like second training session in a day for instance. And I generally try not to drink coffee in the morning, actually. Well, I, I don't know how well that's going to go over for our audience, um, Tommy. I think I think the rest of us humans um, require a bit of caffeine in the morning, but I hear you with, with kind of essentially withholding it. So then when you do use it, um, it really has the effect that the drug is supposed to have on you. I think that's um, that's an interesting perspective there. What else? Um, just as we wrap up this chapter, is there anything else that you feel the rest of us, our, our weekend warriors here, might be able to glean from nutrition? I mean, maybe the one thing, I talk, I've talked to Arnold a bunch, we talk about everything, but we've talked a lot about nutrition, and he thinks that supplements and really eating healthy is less a matter of making it so that you perform better the next day, and more a matter of creating longevity, which obviously right now, I'm 43, and I'm injured I'm, I'm thinking about that kind of stuff a lot and i'm wondering what what i can do nutrition wise to make it so i just stay young and strong for as long as possible and i i don't i don't really have any advice because i feel like i'm i'm just cluing into that for the first time really in the last six months of my life but you know maybe we'll talk in a few years and i'll have more more wisdom well good yeah let's do it uh and, and good luck with your recovery um through nutrition and training and everything else um, you know, the one thing I think just to, to now close this up is, is that you have a pretty long lens on climbing and, um, a, as it pertains to kind of this concept of lighter is better. And we're, we're moving away from that, which I think by and large is a really good thing for the sport and for the community. Um, but you know, you come from a time where that was kind of like one of the, one of the commandments. And I, I'm curious, you know, just what what that was like kind of being around during that time and, and maybe how that has informed your perspective now. Yeah. I mean, I think people were, they didn't really know. I mean, I was certainly around a lot of anorexic climbers and people who really starved themselves, but I had an interesting perspective at the time because I was a, I was a wrestler in middle and early high school. And in that sport, you actually have to cut weight. Like there's a lot of eating disorder. I feel like in the sport of wrestling, because you have to cut weight to make it to a lower weight class. And we had my middle school, which my dad coached the wrestling team, actually. We had a phenomenal wrestling program at that school. And they were very anti-dieting, essentially. 
And I remember the idea that dieting didn't work was reinforced on my last season wrestling because there was another team that was like, it seemed like they were likely to end the reign of my middle school wrestling team after 15 years. Like they were, they were good. They were getting really good. And so for the, this like final tournament, they all decided to cut a weight class and they're like, this is going to be the thing that, that brings it home. We're going to finally beat this like incredible wrestling team. And it didn't work at all. Like it had, it had the opposite effect. We obliterated them. And so I went from that to being a serious comp climber. And I was like dieting and, and heavily restricting your caloric intake may make you feel better for you may make you feel lighter a little bit while you're climbing, but ultimately it's going to be detrimental. And so I've always felt that way. Let's dive into tactics now, Tommy. And this of course is an area where you really shine uh, being uh, one of the foremost experts on tactically intensive objectives like big walls and link ups and these big expeditions that you do. And so I'm, I'm curious to learn if that's an area that you've struggled in. I, I really get fascinated by the puzzle of climbing and sort of the more complicated the endeavor is, the, the more fascinating that puzzle becomes. And so that's why things like speed climbing or big link, link ups become super cool for me because it's all about the strategy and the tactics and things can go from being seemingly impossible to being quite easy just based on your strategy. I mean, I really saw that on climbing on El Cap for the first time. Like the first time I went and tried to free El the Salafay wall as a teenager, I went with my dad. I used all these old school techniques. I had my, you know, I had like a Jumar and my approach shoes clipped to my harness and like 30 pounds of hardware on me. And I would just try and climb these pitches and set up a haul and, and then haul the gear up. And it just, it just it felt so hard, you know. It felt felt almost impossible to climb the wall in that way. And then and then I talked to some people, and I read some articles, and I saw pictures of the Huber brothers up on El Cap with like two cams clipped to them. And I'm like, how do they do that? Like, how are they up there and they have nothing clipped to them? And so I started to approach big wall climbing with this with this strategy in my in mind. And I remember one day I was just I was just driving through Utah and, and I, I just thought of this idea. I was like, maybe I can figure out how to climb the South there without hauling at all by rappelling down from the top ahead of time and stashing some gear. Now this is like commonplace. People do it all the time. But for me, I was like, this was an epiphany. I was like, this is what's going to make it happen and stashing some gear below the crux at the head wall and then just jumaring back out and then coming around and climbing all the way up to there in a day and sleeping there and then climbing to the top and then having a rope that went from my gear all the way to the summit. And then I, and then I would just haul my gear up at the end. And that's what I ended up doing when I free climbed the South Day for the first time. And it worked. It was great. It was like, you know, it made all the difference. I mean, that changed. Is is that, was was your send of the Salafé what changed big wall tactics going forward? Because as you said, that's commonplace now is, you know, these fixed lines. I mean, obviously, I guess we're going back to Warren Harding. He had all sorts of fixed lines and they were, you know, trucking up jugs of wine and, and barbecue grills and, and things to Dolt Tower and all this stuff. But did you take that strategy, that tactic that you employed on Salafé forward? And, and was that kind of what ushered in that new tactical style of, of approaching big wall climbing, do you think? I don't think that ushered it in. I mean, I, f I feel like, I feel like it was evolving that way for a lot of people at the same time, like really Lynn Hill did that kind of stuff. I just didn't know it when I climbed the South A, but she had, she had strategies like that when she climbed the nose. 
Um, and then kind of around that same time was when Yuji Hirayama was coming to Yosemite and he would just hire Hans Florin and a team of people to just do all the hauling for him. And sometimes they would even take the hold and figure out where the gear went. Um, the Huber brothers would usually do it, just the two of them, but they would, they would r repel everything and stat make camps throughout the whole wall. And I would say if any, if any single person ushered it in, I would probably say it was the Hubers. And I saw them like after I climbed the South, they, I saw the Hubers a lot and I saw all their strategies and I was really interested in what they were doing. And then, and then I saw everybody else that was climbing El Cap for the next 15 years started employing these same kind of tactics. Inter interestingly, these days, um, the Europeans are sort of abandoning all that. They think that wrapping in and pre-stashing things is bad style. And so they're going back to this ground up approach, which is certainly way better style and way more adventurous. And I kind of wonder if that's going to be the future. Yeah. How interesting. Um, I feel like the Europeans kind of ushered in the the lighter style, I mean, just even ushering in sport climbing with bolts and that kind of thing. And now um, going back to kind of the purest um, side, if you will, of, of bringing in, maybe they'll, uh, maybe they'll go back to climbing in Converse All-Stars as well, because shoes are, shoes are aid. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so, you know, tactically, before we move on here, I, I want to look at the Dawn Wall specifically. And um, I'm thinking about the dyno pitch that Kevin was able to put together. Ultimately, you created this down climb pitch where you went a hundred and some feet to effectively move 12 feet laterally right to avoid this this dyno that didn't feel high percentage for you and while i won't be doing anything like that in, in my own climbing most of us won't there there is this sense that we could get on a pitch sport route or a boulder for that matter or you know multi-pitch and hit some sort of stopper mover section and and try to get creative to figure out our own way around that. And um, I, I'm you know looking at the dawn wall or just that pitch in, in particular. I'm curious tactically how you look at working out original beta that maybe just doesn't exist or that you've never seen anybody else do before. I mean the dawn wall is such a great example of this because we went through that over and over again. There are so many sections that felt improbable. Um, that we had to figure out ways to work through. And I think from a very broad perspective, like optimism was very key. Like if something seemed totally impossible, you just had to believe that you would get better or figure it out eventually. But as you zoom in a little bit closer, um, partnering up with Kevin was super important for me in this way because he analyzed body movements in a way that I had never seen. Like he... I think in school, he studied kinesiology. He has this incredible way of moving on rock. He is super analytical about movements. And so I learned, and, he, and he's got this incredible memory. And so I learned all that stuff from him. Like we would just sit in the portal edge and talk about the intricacies of every move, like ad nauseum you know like to this point to in this way that would make anybody who wasn't psyched about this route totally think that we're insane um but then when i would get out on the wall like i really really learned to analyze those intricacies in this very granular way like the way that i stepped on the rock the amount of you know the angle that my soul was facing the hold how much i was pushing in versus pushing down where my hips are i mean we would spend hours 
weeks, you know, on a single move, just trying to dissect it and figure it out. And, and El Cap was a great venue for that because, you know, there was all these moves we could do. And then there was just a few that we couldn't, and we really, really wanted to link them, link them together. Whereas on a sport climb, you know, you might just move on to the next sport climb if there's like one or two moves you can't do. But if you're trying to link this 30, this 32 pitch route together and it comes down to like two moves, you, you really spend a lot of time trying to figure out those two moves. And it helps you understand that if you work at it long enough and you train right and you analyze it enough, you, you, you eventually oftentimes figure out a way. Yeah, that's got to be a pretty badass feeling when something seems impossible or, or as you said, maybe improbable to then put it together, is it just beating your head against the wall and just trying things a million times? Or is there a method that you've, that you feel you've kind of landed on that, that the rest of us can look at? Is there a bit of a formula to trying to put together sequences that seem like they might not go? Uh, I think it's a, it's more like a perseverance to keep experimenting with different formulas. Yeah, like one key thing that we figured out after years on the Dawn Wall is that our skin would get so thick and slippery that we couldn't hold on to the really small holds anymore just because our skin wouldn't conform around them. And so one time I got injured. And well, I, like, a, like a short-term injury, I dropped a haul bag actually 60 meters and it impacted the end of the rope and like injured my ribs for about two weeks and so all my callus shed in two weeks and when I come when I came back after that all of a sudden I could do all these moves I couldn't do before that and and we had been working on the hardest moves of the of the route for like two months at that point and I, we just couldn't do them we were just beating our heads against the wall like you said and we would get little breakthroughs but we we're also getting tired and mentally it was pretty taxing and then the eventual breakthrough was just that we needed to let the callus shut off of our fingers and so you just have to like believe that eventually you will figure something out it could take a long time and it might come from someplace that you didn't understand so let's talk about mental game now tommy and and i want to continue along the theme of the dawn wall because that is very fertile soil for us here as we explore this chapter but before we get more specific on that where have you struggled just in general what comes to mind where have you struggled in your mental game with your climbing? Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like for whatever reason, competition climbing and sport climbing became very mentally challenging for me. Like if you're working on a hard sport climb, for instance, like as you usually you, you, you find a lot of progress early on and then it, you kind of plateau out and you get too mentally wrapped up in it. And then you have to kind of keep at it until you get to the point where you can climb with this absolute perfection before you ultimately end up doing that climb or you find a mental space where you kind of give up and are able to let go of the expectations. And so I struggled with that kind of stuff a ton in competitions. I think it was, it was, yeah, more a matter of like my own expectations, which held me back in adventure climbing or big wall climbing for whatever reason, I reacted way differently to it. I didn't, I didn't go through that mental game in the same way. It's like the the drama of big wall climbing sort of brought out the best of me. And I felt like sort of the more that was on the line, the better I performed. And that's one of the reasons I, I ultimately ended up focusing on that for so long. And, and why do you think that is? Or where does that mental resilience come from? 
I mean, you know, I guess bringing things back to the Dong Wall here, um, that's a project. I mean, it's a life project, uh, obviously, for you. But you worked on it more quietly, more personally for years before bringing it publicly, before um, bringing Kevin into the project. And so you were so deeply connected to it. But there were multiple times, not just one, as, as you wrote about, where you fully walked away from the project right? Like the season ended and you said, this is it. It's not for me. I, I don't have it. It's for the next generation. And you straight up quit and walked away only to maybe a few weeks or a few months, um, start to come back to it and, and wrap off the top and start sussing things out again. And so, you know, where does that come from? That, that resilience with regard to kind of taking on the impossible? I mean, it probably comes from experience mostly. Like I've, and well, I mean, it comes from a bunch of places like experience, a deep love of being out there and like going through that process. Like I would give up. I would feel like it all got to be too heavy and a bit much and I would just totally give up. But then within a month or two, I'd, I would really miss that struggle, I guess, you know, being out there every day in this beautiful place, working towards this very distinct goal. Like ultimately that was that was a great way to live. And so then I would find myself thinking about it again and ultimately coming back. And you really just absolutely pushed yourself to your limits, your physical and uh, mental and emotional limits on that project. And uh, honestly, on so many others that you've done, I wonder just in rereading some sections of the push prior to, to chatting with you here, how much of an impact your experience in Kyrgyzstan had on that? I mean, you were taken hostage. And as you wrote, you were essentially pushed well beyond what you thought your physical limits could ever handle. And yet here you were still running, still climbing, calling upon these physical and mental reserves that you thought you could never tap into because you were just past empty. And I certainly wouldn't suggest that anybody um, seek getting taken hostage in order to become better at rock climbing. But maybe there's something that you've learned here that that uh, ordeal, that experience almost forced you to either recognize or tap into that has translated to this resilience, to this ability to try incredibly hard to push through pain, to to perform at the absolute highest levels. And I'm curious how you uh, view that perspective as it now pertains to just your life and your climbing. So pre-Kyrgyzstan, I thought of my climbing in terms of just like performance and training and um, you know what I can do on a day-to-day -day basis to get better. Kyrgyzstan almost ignited this curiosity about like the limits of like human endurance and our ability to suffer because it recalibrated my preconceived notions of that. Um, I didn't really think about those things much before Kyrgyzstan, but I think after Kyrgyzstan, I came back and I was like, wow, we were able to endure just so much more than I ever thought. And it just made me really curious about what else I was capable of that I didn't think I was capable of before, you know, yeah, just, yeah, like I said, it just like ignited this curiosity, I guess. Yeah, I'm just super fascinated by this, by this notion that the human body can take on far more than we actually think that we can take on. And you hear this often from ultra runners um, and people who are like in the Navy SEALs, for example, and, and folks like yourself who have gone through these really harrowing ordeals and it's come back and you've just got this totally fresh and new perspective on what your body can handle. So how did you ultimately put that new perspective to the test? It really shifted the style that I pursued from like 
sport climbing or bouldering, more power specific stuff to like mega endurance, um, adventure climbing, you know, like my curiosity about the, like our limits of human endurance can't really be explored through sport climbing or bouldering that well. And so ultimately I use those as tools and ways to just like have fun on a day-to-day basis. But my big goals shifted to these like big, more endurance related things. And I also just, I, th- I think I built this, like this perseverance. Like I think I would work on a, a climb for like a couple months and then usually do it. But if not, I would just move on. And then after Kyrgyzstan, I was willing to put years of effort into a single thing. Yeah, I really think that that's one of the just like the main characteristics that separates elite climbers from non-elite climbers is that willingness, that almost almost that addiction to persevere through the struggle and through suffering. I'm, I certainly can't do it. Maybe I respect it so much because I'm too soft uh, to put myself in such an uncomfortable position mentally and physically for so long. And that really brings up some of these like massive expeditions and suffer fests that you take on often with Alex Honnold, um, most recently documented very well in in the cuddle film from uh, real rock. And so I wonder like, how do you draw that line? Where does something go from like maybe embraceable, even enjoyable type two fun to where you hit that line and things are no longer even considered type two fun? Um, I mean, I think we haven't found that line yet. Like even on the cuddle, I think I just botched my nutrition essentially. And that's what created sort of the, the lull that I had. And so I feel like if I would do it again, I would just do my nutrition a little different and hopefully that wouldn't happen. And who knows, maybe we could have gone for four days. I'm not sure. I mean, hopefully if our bodies can take it, we're going to just keep pursuing sort of bigger and longer endurance style objectives until we find that line. And interesting, like I'm friends with a lot of ultra runners and, you know, I I think 20 years ago, a marathon seemed like a really long distance. And now people are running 250 miles in a single push. You know, I think we just don't know yet at this point. Nobody, I mean, people who are really fascinated in this stuff don't know where that line is. It's very few people have just like run or climbed until they just fell down dead. You know, it takes a lot for that to happen. Well, geez, if if you feel like you haven't been even close to that line, then um, geez, that that says a lot. Um, I hope you don't get too close to that line, Tommy. But but are there objectives that you've got on the radar, either yourself personally or or you and Alex, with regard to just testing those limits on endurance? I mean, I don't have anything that's like that I'm zooming in on that I'm like super focused on at this point. I mean, that the big link up we did in Rocky Mountain National Park, like there's a lot of other big link ups like that in the world or bigger than that, that would be that people are doing that would be really exciting for me. Um, you know, there's, there's a big one that was done last year called the Goliath Traverse in the Sierras. Honnold's working on one in Red Rocks that's probably like three times as big as the Cuddle or maybe maybe two times as big as the Cuddle. Um, you know, there's a little bit smaller one called the Whirl in Salt Lake City that people do. And they're all different in terms of like how much technical rock climbing versus just scrambling there is. Um, but I think that's ultimately what I'm the most excited about nowadays as long as my Achilles allows it to happen 
um like if i if i could just be physically able to do whatever to pursue whatever i wanted to right now i think it would be those sort of things and maybe even take it bigger like i like ideas of doing giant bike tours that start in alaska and go all the way to south america or whatever you know and then climb along the way i don't i don't know there's a lot of creativity and exploration that could be done in that way and i don't know where it's going to take me yeah, man, I'm so psyched to hear about those, like how how big you think when it comes to those endurance style projects and cannot wait to see where they take you. Um, I feel like, you know, for me, I puked on my first trad day doing the 45 minute approach up to Takeets and um, just about collapsed when I went out climbing um, with with Alex and Jordan last year, um, up to Potosi that, that approach to Potosi is pretty legit. So, you know, I'm, I'm a ways from reaching, uh, Tommy Caldwell Sufferfest status, but man, I am super inspired by it, dude. All right, Tommy, we are rounding the arete here into our final chapter, which is purpose and, um, things that you're passionate about beyond your own climbing pursuits. And you've got so much that you're working on from family to writing to environmental advocacy. What is it that's driving you right now? What are you most passionate about? Um, I mean, these days it's both family and my kind of environmental work that I do, um, if I had to prioritize it, I always prioritize family, even above climbing these days. Um, and that is incredibly fulfilling in this way. I don't, I, I don't know if I can fully articulate or understand myself, like just having this, especially when I get injured, like, you know, like I think one of the reasons my morale has been okay is because I go home and I have these like crazy, awesome, smiling, goofy kids that I can go do things with. And I just, I just crave being around them all the time. And so I'm putting a lot of energy into trying to do the best job I can to be a husband and a father and, um, and, you know, create this great life for my children. Yeah. Let's talk about this for a second. I'm, I'm really interested in this personally, because I think, you know, you and I are the same age. We're both 43. We both have two kids. Um, my kids are four and seven. So I think a couple of years younger than, than yours, but so you're like this crystal ball for me. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in trying to learn how fathers develop their parenting toolkit. And, you know, your dad famously, as you've written, your dad really pushed you hard. Um, you know, but look, the net result is that you are an elite athlete at the absolute top of your field. That's just absolutely smashed records and barriers and rewritten rules for the sport of rock climbing. And so I'm curious, you know, how much of essentially your dad's parenting style do you work into your own style? And what have you learned from that? What can I learn from that? Uh, I mean, my my dad's kind of superpower in life was getting getting kids to believe that getting out and suffering was like a really fun thing. Um, and he still does that to this day. <laughs> and um, I feel like I take that and I try to apply it to my kids, but I, and and sometimes with my dad, um, it maybe went too far. Like he, he pushed us in ways that I can't push my kids. And that was probably to my benefit mostly, but he, it did get dark at times. And with my kids at their age, I just try and keep it as fun as possible. Um, like, I think we go out and we, you know, we go out and we kind of beat ourselves up in the mountains, but I'm way more likely 
and maybe this is because of my kids, maybe this is because of me to call it quits if they're not having fun. With my dad, we never called it quits. My wife, interestingly, is more like my dad in her parenting style than I am. Um, like, I'm, I'm just worried about making them hate it, you know? Like, by pushing them too far or, like, not really pushing them too far, but getting them involved in adventures that just become a bit much and traumatize them. <laughs> I think that's our major um, risk in the way that we parent is we, we get them out there in gnarly conditions or on these really long excursions. And and sometimes we're like, is this too much? Like, are we going to make them hate this? And in some ways, maybe we are at times. I, I'm hoping it'll come around in the end. Um, I think my dad was similar in that way. Like we went on these big adventures and honestly, my sister rebelled from it completely. It worked for me. It didn't work for her. And so I'm not really sure if I'm doing it right with my kids, but you know, I'm doing my best. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm constantly kind of trying to assess this line myself when I bring the kids out to the crag, for example, um, you know, it's mostly pretty easy here at the Red River Gorge. The approaches are pretty mellow and we all climb and then they'll climb or we'll swing them on the rope and. You know, they're pretty chill days, but I'm I'm always looking for these opportunities to try to push them a little bit harder outside of the comfort zone, you know, essentially. Um, but then I wonder, like, is there a risk to turning them off from the activity, as you said just now? But, um, but like, is there a benefit to type two fun? And even, you know, do you think kids can grasp type two fun at this point? I think I wrestle with that constantly. And I don't, I don't know for sure. Like I've had a couple of experiences with my kids where they started, especially my older son at this point, where he started to understand type two fun just a little bit, but that's a really hard concept for kids to really understand. I mean, my dad can make it happen amazingly well. Um, but I've had a hard time getting that idea through to my kids. So more often at this stage, I'm like, they will understand that later in life. Maybe somebody else will have to teach that to them, honestly. Um, and so we focus more on making it type one fun as much as possible. Yeah, cool, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing that perspective. Um, it's kind of constantly a balance for us parents to try to strike, and it's it's always good to get advice. And And I appreciate you sharing that there. Now, I want to take some time here to also talk about your advocacy work, which is crazy inspiring, but it's also just a really huge area of interest, right? For a lot of the athletes that we've had on the show and certainly a lot of listeners, uh, the environment is a number one issue, but that also contains about a million sub-issues. So, so what is it for you? What's your area of focus right now? I would say shifts, but right now I've focused more on land protection issues just because it allows, because I feel like I've got a stronger voice there. Um, like I've spent a lot of time in kind of our wild places and I really value them. And so I can speak more articulately to that. And it allows me to go to these places. Like I'm, I'm really into this idea of, of like ground truth and like going out and getting people to understand the reality of our natural world a little bit off of the beaten path and the importance to, of protecting it. And that sort of feeds into climate or to like land-based climate solutions, like saving forests to sequester carbon. And so they're all interconnected in, in different ways. Um, and honestly, I still feel like such an infant in this field. I'm, I'm trying to find, find my path. But, um, and, then, and then lately, I've also been getting back to my roots of advocacy with the Access Fund a little bit and advocating just for climbing access. Originally, I did it just because I wanted to be able to climb in these places, but now I see that 
um, when you protect them, it takes it off the table for extraction in a, in a lot of cases. And it also aligns with uh, native values a lot of times. And so that's sort of re-energized my, my work with the Access Fund. And so I, you know, we're working on issues like Bears Ears or the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And yeah, you know, Access Fund is a great example there because their entree into environmental protection is through protecting climbing areas, right? That's one of the main ways they connect the climbing community with the importance of protecting unique and diverse ecosystems in general. And so to experience that as a climber, you automatically, I think, have this deeper connection and um, it's a very short and direct path to say, hey, you like this, you've experienced this, let's protect it. Before we get kind of specific on some of these areas um, and, and these lands that you've become passionate about, just more big picture, how do you connect, like as Tommy Caldwell, celebrity rock climber and advocate, how do you connect with folks in Washington or folks in various state levels of public office as well as just individuals, if they haven't been out there, how can you get them passionate and connect them about these issues and, and also especially these places? I think you try it all. Like, I definitely do try and emotionally co connect them through storytelling of what, I, what, what I've experienced there. Um, so my role, as I see it, is to be the person who does know it and loves it and convinces the actual politicians to care. And is that a direct connection that you're making with these folks or through their constituencies? Or are you um, relying and working with some of these fantastic organizations out there that are, are building these bridges? A little bit of everything. I mean, there's so many organizations in the outdoor world that, are, that make those connections these days, like Protect Our Winners or the Access Fund or... Um, you know, like the Nature Conservancy or, you know, there's like a zillion of them if you really start to dig into it that can take people who are motivated to protect and give them the tools to to actually do that. Um, but sometimes I've, I've gotten to the experiences where I get to I get to make relationships with the, either the staffers or sometimes the politicians directly. And I have been out climbing with some of them. And, um, but, you know, when you get those opportunities, it's hugely valuable. Man, climbing with a politician sounds like a bit of a double-edged sword, but um, I mean, what a hell of a way to to really get somebody literally and figuratively away from their desk and connecting with these incredible issues. Um, it's awesome that you're doing that work. And how about the rest of us, those of us who are listening right now that don't have maybe a huge amount of money uh, or um, a level of celebrity and a platform on social media? How can we get out there and take action and, and what issues do you feel are maybe what's not in the public eye as much right now, but you see as something that's pretty critical? One issue that's a little bit under the radar right now that is a little bit harder to tie to climate directly is this idea that there's a big force out there to make bolts in wilderness highly regulated in a way that they have never been in the past. And it's sort of it's it's kind of like rearing its head in the Black Canyon right now in Joshua Tree, and it's important to me because I, you know, I've, I've used fixed anchors my whole life. It's kind of critical to what we do in the mountains. But I've been spending the last many years of my life trying to build this coalition, build this like army of people that really care about the environment, trying to motivate climbers to do that. And if you take fixed anchors off the table, 
it's going to really limit our ability to, you know, it's, it's going to basically alienate a huge group of people that I've been working to impassion over these years. Um, and so, yeah, I've been kind of, you know, like the access fund has been doing great work in this, in this field of trying to sort of legislatively help people understand why fixed anchor is important. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering who's driving that side of the issue. Like, who is it that's advocating against fixed anchors? It's hard to really totally pinpoint, actually. I think they try and stay relatively anonymous, but there's a highly effective force that gets to high-level politicians and gets them to try and regulate. And so we have to just, we just go to those politicians and and tell our side of it and we never get to really understand why they've even taken it up like in a world where climate change is a huge issue you know that it would it just creates so much like they're trying to create tons of bureaucracy in a way that just doesn't even financially make sense right now and so yeah we just we, we just kind of talk to the politicians and i don't get too into the weeds i mean the policy director of the access fund is 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 the person that really does get into the weeds and understands it way better than i do yeah, that's really fascinating. And Access Fund is just, they're crushing it. Um, they're doing fantastic work. I think everybody who's listening, get your t-shirt, get your sticker, support Access Fund. And there are other fantastic organizations out there. You work with a lot of them. What can we, Tommy, now do? Like, how do we take action here on a lot of these issues, do you think? I mean, membership is the very most basic, easiest thing to do. Um but beyond that, you follow the lead of these organizations that are spending all their time thinking about it. They put out action alerts. They they ask people to call their, you know, specific lawmakers and talk about it. They do letter writing campaigns. Like you can dig pretty deep and, you know, protect our winners and the Access Fund are kind of the most climber centric. I mean, mostly the Access Fund is the most climber centric. Protect our winners does a lot of great stuff in the climbing field though. So if climbing is your community, those are the easiest ones. But if climbing is not your community, there's a great tool that Patagonia has called ActionWorks, just uh, patagonia.com slash ActionWorks. There's a whole website where you can just type in your zip code and it gives you all the environmental nonprofits in your area. And you can just read about them and figure out which ones you want to either donate to or get involved with. And there's endless um, volunteer opportunities. And one thing that that does is it gets you in a community of people that care. Like the, the, the way to be the most effective is, I, believe, I really believe in this ground up sort of approach where um, you impassion a few people and they get their friends involved and then it just creates this big ground up swell. And so ActionWorks is, is great for that. Fantastic, man. Well, thank you for leading by example. Um, dude, good luck with the injury recovery. I'm sure you're going to be back doing some incredible link-ups pretty soon here. Keep us posted. And I just can't thank you enough for, for taking the time on the show here, Tommy. It was, it was a real pleasure. It's a real honor to talk with you, man. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I, I love your podcast and um, yeah, thanks for doing great work. You say you don't have perseverance. You've been working on this long enough that you uh, you do have some at least. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for saying that, man. I, I do appreciate that. You know, it's like, it's type two fun making a podcast most of the time, but today was a lot of type one fun. And that wraps up our chat with the man, the myth, the legend, Tommy Caldwell. What did you all think? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Tommy Caldwell, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. 
Now in a minute, I'm gonna hit you with my takeaways from this epic chat with Tommy. But first, how about a little love for the brands that are supporting this show and making it possible. Big shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Try their supercharged collagen to keep your fingers, all nine or 10 of them, strong and healthy. Y'all, Fizzy Vantage is now available in Europe from the Epic TV online shop and in the US at select gyms and of course at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. And y'all remember to look out for the Sirocco helmet by Petzl when you stop into your local gear shop. It's the best of the best when it comes to protecting your melon and going above and beyond the standards for top and side protection. Access the inaccessible at Petzl.com. Man, I was really fangirling during this one, you guys. I mean, just too many takeaways here to list, but I think what really stands out to me is Tommy's mindset around trying hard. I mean, this guy sees a challenge and he figures out how to make it even more challenging. He, he seeks out struggle and discomfort and knowing that the journey and the ultimate reward will be that much more fulfilling and formative if he's pushing himself to the fullest. I love it. It's so motivating. I don't have it, but I want more of it. I don't think anyone has a work ethic that matches Tommy's, whether he's training or projecting or fighting to protect precious land and resources. I know I'm going to be listening to these chapters again and again, and I hope you all do as well. Well, that clips the anchors on this episode. Hey, would you like a free sticker? It's easy. Just rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It actually is a huge, huge help to get the show discovered and supported. And so if you do that, I'll send you a sticker. Just post your review to IG, tagging the show. I'll slide into your DMs. Boom, free sticky. But don't just stop there, you guys. Stickers are nice, but what about ad-free episodes, access to pro clinics, cool swag, and how about just supporting the climbers who are working their harnesses off to bring you this sweet, sweet content? Pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show. And for the price of about a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap beer, or both, depending on where you shop, you will get all the perks and will probably feel so damn good about it that your project will go down two sessions faster. Check it out at patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show. Thank you. I love you. And lastly, the struggle's carbon neutral. Thanks to a partnership with the Honnold Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. You guys, they're doing awesome work. Check it all out at honnoldfoundation.org. I'm your host, Ryan Devlin, and this show was produced by myself and Mary Mathis. The Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. All right, y'all, let's climb hard and do good things in the world.